Previously on the Censor, the great emperor Kotal Beskig has conquered Hosebayan, and he has added a very distinct culture to his panoply. In his shrewd manner, he began his rule by projecting his power through a puppet overlord named Yichin, who, unknown to the foreign emperor, was suffering from a strange domestic quandary. Yichin's wife, Wiam, has just given birth to a child who could not possibly be his, and Wiam claims that this child, whose name is Hikadaf, was sired by Yos, the father of everything. Before Yichin can dispute this claim, the infant Hikadaf casts him into the wasteland of Dinia, a blistering desert that is normally reserved for the impious dead. Even with her cruel husband's death, Wiam and Hikadaf are certain to face the retribution from the incensed Kotal, who has lost his puppet. So she flees her palace in order to place her child in the arms of the Hosea, who are devout ascetics that commit their life to Yos. Even as she passes off the child and draws off the soldiers of Kotal, she is murdered, along with ten other mothers and babies, and the emperor goes on to concoct another scheme to cement his rule in Hosebayan. Fortunately, her unusual newborn child, Hikadaf, is safe under the roof of Tel Bathud, though he might not be so safe in the particular set of hands he was placed in. The Censor by Seth Brady Chapter 6. Brother Kaibin, the Caregiver Here began the gathering of wisdom for Hikadaf Yosul, son of Wiam. In the time it took Kotal Beskig to expand his circle beyond the verdant hills of Hosebayan and into the kingdoms nearby, Hikadaf would become a lord that is greater than the sum of all mankind. In the time when the two terrible spheres of Wentekia were to expand into a union, Hikadaf was walking across the known world, peering into the flat faces of the rough stone that is a person. Though he was born of Yosa's gift to Wiam, he did not have this knowledge innately. It was the reason Yos had left, and why Yos had returned to the world. The father of everything did not understand his children, and they understood nothing without him. Yos was cruel, vain, and unforgiving but he still desired the love and acknowledgement of people, and he wished with his implacable will that they would open their eyes. In a like fashion did Hikadaf open his eyes as he was sheltered in the kitchen of Bathud. He saw the bearded faces of men every day, some caring for him and some indifferent to him. First in his eyes was a young one with a patched beard and a round, dark face. He did not remember, but this one was Kaibun, who had conveyed Hikadaf secretly on the night of his mother's murder. Kaibun did not have an especial love for children, but he understood that to abandon Hikadaf would be cardinal amongst the unwritten, wretched acts that good men avoid. Yos had not warned mankind particularly against leaving babies to the cold, 
not when he had spoken to the prophet Tobed near the sea about his long list, but he certainly did not forgive it. Kaiban, with his much lesser stature, did not forgive it either. Besides that one kind-hearted brother and some unnamed, formless brothers who cooked and cleaned but did not dote on the boy, Hikidoff saw only the great room about him. The kitchen was vast, so much so that it was perhaps one of the wider regions of space in the universe. He was set on a table of thick wood in the corner of the room, facing the open gulf of air between him and a distant tableau of tables, ladles, and a glowing oven. That scene was so far as to be flat as a mural to the child, so it was the domed, mildly adorned ceiling that kept his attention. It was smooth and slightly pebbled like an eggshell, and there were tiny paintings in irregular places. The one that demanded the most notice was a turn-up in the center, whose horizontally wrinkled face evoked a serene attitude. It was all he saw when the candles in the oven fire lit up the kitchen, though he would soon make out less obvious forms, like an owl with very long legs speaking to a man with wooden limbs and a wooden head. They were painted atop a butte with no base, because a goblin with sliced beef-colored limbs was biting away and devouring the stone beneath. Further away still was a cloud that was also an old man whose hands and splayed feet glowed and crackled like lightning. This cloud cast a torrent of fat raindrops that fell upon five naked women, each of whom had differently colored limbs. Hikudov could just see the taller one in the center whose limbs were sticks tied together, and he fancied that she looked familiar. That was upon a nearer wall, though there were walls that were so distant that they darkened in the smoke of the room. Though he was born in a palace and saw the open streets only an hour into the beginning of his life, he would tell anyone that that room was greater than all open spaces anywhere, if he could speak. Even the ridge of his basket seemed a great distance from him, because he did not yet have the arms or legs to reach it. All he could do was hope to kick, hope to grasp, and dream of speaking like the bearded men did. In the little time that an absent memory occupies, any change will happen without interpolation. Like a dream, it is a gallery where the observer is absorbed in singular moments with such simple-mindedness that they do not reflect on the previous paintings. If this creature is learning, it is not conscious of the fact, nor does it feel any unknowing pride for having learned. Each lesson is invariably a punishment, because a glad observer of a primitive aspect will remain on that one lovely painting. It will only feel pleasure at these moments when it understands the gallery as a whole. Hikidoff finally regarded the ceiling without focusing on any specific picture. There was a story in it about the world that was outside the kitchen. It was clearly a world where there wasn't just the one kind-hearted Kaiban in his black robe, but also beautiful women with stick arms and a placidly happy root vegetable. It seemed, in his little mind that could not yet think with words, that the world outside the kitchen did not promise to be a kind one. In that little mind that could not command a body, without a set of limbs to move with his own volition, Hikidoff understood his will. He knew that he must exercise his will, so that he may reach out further than the kitchen.
Kaibin, for all his good nature, did not have the proper instincts to rear an infant. He took the task to be as simple as setting the thing in a warm place and giving it food and water until it can seek out food and water for itself. This did not prove to be the case, for the child did not only leave its food and water untouched, but cried out continuously without any heed to his benefactor's entreaties for silence. It was irksome to Kaiban that a creature would not ride up to receive food and water that is given freely, but it began to cause him anxiety that the child would spurn food so much as to perish in his care. He did not think of asking the other Bathudin for advice on the issue, for he never guessed that anyone but a woman would ever know more than him on the subject. A brother by the name of Fesia did happen to have this knowledge, and he was insightful enough to help Kaiban without his asking. This creature needs mother's milk, you round thing, said Fesia. It will not chew food and drink water. It cannot do that. I didn't know that, explained Kaiban. How was I supposed to know that? Your ignorance is excusable, brother Kaiban, but that you cannot figure out such a thing without being told owes to stupidity. Kaiban threw up his hands in offense. He was embarrassed, but he did not consider his foolishness so great. It was a minor sin, though, and so was the accusation, so both brothers clasped their fists and uttered a brief penance of, We lament our folly and seek to resemble your perfection. The poor thing would not be able to pick up that little bit of bread in that cup of water that you put there, would he? asked Fessia. He has no limbs and no one bothered to give him any. This did present something to Kaiban that he failed to consider. He was embarrassed that he would be senseless enough to forget that one needed at least a hand to lift a cup. To his knowledge, he didn't remember wearing a set of limbs that he needed to ask for, for himself from a limner. Do babies get limbs? asked Kaiban. I've never seen such a small bit of limbs. It seems like a waste to me. Fessia, who found Kaiban's incognizance a cause of infinite scorn and made no apology to Yos for such pride, answered in the affirmative. Do you remember King Bakerod and his song for Gesthet? asked Fessia. Kaibun did not read the Benath, and he had no knowledge of Bakerod's verse. His embarrassment was a clear answer in spite of his silence. Fessia, motivated by his unrighteous sanctimony, laid the poem out in simple language. Bakerod was a king in the time of Thudes, began Fessia ruling the back sons of Tescor and uniting them against the pink-skinned, flaxen-haired Boshta as they splayed across the civilized world. Though Tescor was a great country and open to many ports of sea, the Boshta were landed folk, and they only entered that promontory for the north. So Bakerod took a greater amount of his menfolk and armed them, promising a battle that would be simple and heroic. The heroism in their minds lay in how certain their victory seemed. They were victorious in the end, but their defeat was a near thing. The Bashta who were bold enough to break into this fertile land were alien to the Tescorans, appearing as raw meat-colored giants with hair that was almost blue. Bakerod described that they were so pink that they appeared to be flayed, and that they fought viciously in spite of their sore-rimmed yanodes and their stinging yellow eyes. They all had very thick wooden limbs that clacked against the earth with an angry sound. There were not enough of these ragged invaders to overcome the defending Tescorin, 
but it was a great enough feat by Bakerod to keep his men calm and brave in the sight of the Bastia. He tramped amongst them, shouting that as terrible as the pink men appeared before them, it would be too much to bear that any of their wives and children be victim to such monsters. So then were the Tescoran motivated by their fear as they were by their pride, and they fought with rare heroism. Still, the Bashta took one, sometimes two, for every one of their dead, and the two armies were vastly diminished by the time the invaders surrendered. Bakarad, who survived only by the unwillingness of a Bashta warrior to kill him as he crawled, dazed on the ground, was impressed by the honor and tenacity of the invaders as he was dismayed by the death toll. Nor was it lost on him that the Bashta, who were travel-worn and out of their native land, were so much more agile on their feet and with their weapons than his men were, and he wondered how such a bestial folk could be so graceful. So he did not punish the vanquished army, but set them in a camp and fed them, so that they could return to their land with no ill words to Tescor and its king. As he was overseeing this project, which his good soldiers were happy to facilitate, he laid his eyes on a girl among the Bashta. You really should read more, Brother Kaibun. It is very amusing to see how his unflattering depiction of the Bashta men contrasts with that of this particular Bashta girl. He sees of her an exotic treasure of beauty, who is not aware of her uniqueness. Her pink skin, which to Bakerod looks more like the healthy hue of a grapefruit, could not be compared to what he saw on the hide of the men, which was livid like hewn flesh. He was afraid to make his desire known, but she knew it without him expressing it. She entered his employ as a personal servant, and he found it so difficult to contain his feeling. Her name was Gastet, and she had been a chieftain to the Bashta. She was not merely attending to the Evadi army, but fighting amongst them, and this was a fact that wholly surprised Bakarod. So he composed this song a long piece with salacious overtures that praised her character, as well as a note involving her grace. He read this aloud to her, and was the first thing they had said to her ever. She was taken by this piece, and, after they had fulfilled their whims for each other, she remarked on the mentioning of the Bashta people's grace. She explained that it was no inborn trait of the Bashta that made them so. It was merely a proving measure. As a Bashta infant, begins to move and twist its body. They take a stick, a tiny limnactyl or bone as it were, and breach the anode with it. They do so again on the other shoulder and connect the two behind the neck with a length of yonmus. It is a simple process, requiring great care but without the need of a trained limner, and it gives the child an incredible advantage in learning to control its limbs. It must be done cleanly, applying water and pure sorghum wine to the yanode, lest the proving stick foul the baby's blood and kill it. When the baby gains some strength from this, they apply the same measure to the hip yanodes, so that the baby might become more agile on its feet as well. Kaibin sighed his frustration. That was a great length for you to go on and only to tell me how our ancestors taught their babies how to use their arms and legs, he complained. Not just our ancestors, brother, said Fessia. This is yet the method, and there is no reason to abandon it. My mother proved me for limbs, so my older sister told me. 
and I helped her to prove my youngest brother. It is done to nearly everyone, sometimes with the care of a trained limner, but mostly by the mother. As the subject of the mother came up, Kaibin remembered Hikudov, and he regarded the boy. Hikudov was sleeping the implacable sleep of the infant, and the smooth, unworried brow was enviable to the careworn men. But the boy was hungry, thirsty, and moreover isolated from the world. When he had formerly been meek and sullen in the face of Fesia's pedantry, Kaibin spoke with rare cogency. A mother would be a fine person to have here in this place where we shut women out. This boy would do well to be nursed by a mother and to be given a mother's tender love. Kaibin rested his hand on the rim of the basket as if it were adrift in a treacherous river and he would pull it to safety. This was enough to wake the child and all of his hunger and fear that was hidden in sleep bore onto him. So he cried. Kaibin could do nothing. He had as well set the child in a desert as in the kitchen. He was helpless to comfort the boy. So Fessia cradled the baby in his arms and muttered the benediction for the crowbot and the musical tones of the hosia. The benediction for those without limbs, the crowbot, was rendered into soft, loving tones by the brother who was so abrasive and cruel. The words lamented the helplessness of someone doomed by their crowbar, and was always meant for one who could not be spared a set of limbs. Hikadoff was lulled into silence. This child does not need to starve. I do not think that you know this, Brother Kaiban, for your head hangs beneath the cloud of observation upon this tell. But there is a woman in this place sometimes. Kaibin was surprised and said, That is not possible, brother. It would defile this holy place for anyone but a man to be here. It also seems as if the minutiae of our laws hang unattainably above your thatched pate, said Fessia. It is blasphemous for a woman to be here if she is... Fessia's words were caught in his throat. If she is bleeding. Kaibin furrowed his brows in confusion. Fessia elaborated his statement. Newcomers must wade through the holy baths to enter here, as one must wet themselves to the stomach to traverse the bath. A woman at her time must foul the water. To Fessia's unbelieving frustration, Kaibin's brow remained furrowed. However, he must have sensed his brother's ire because he nodded as if understanding and hastily returned to the subject. So there is indeed a woman here? asked Kaibun. Yes, brother, sighed Fessia. I do not know her name, but I have seen her. She is said to live in one of the tall houses besides the tell with her husband, whom she accompanies to help him bring the yawn stuffs and food for the tell. She is a boshta by the look of her, with her black hair and marble skin. Oh, like the lovely Gusthette, swooned Kaibun. I have not seen her. Is she lovely as well? No, she's plain, said Fessia. She has a sharp fish's face and hands all grown over with work-worn calluses. You can hardly get a good look at her hair because it is beneath a scarf that Brother Raparish forces on her with averted eyes, but I guess it is not much to look at. The two Hosia, one with the wide, wrinkled brow and the other one with the baby in his arms, were now pensive. They were in the uncomfortable hot kitchen in their heavy robes, speaking contentiously over a child that should not be here. 
Neither of them liked each other very much, though they were not enemies. It would make it less pleasant for both of them to live and meditate together if the situation were spoken plainly, but the fact stood there between them. There cannot be so much to the purported beauty of women, Brother Kaiban, mused Fessia, else we would not have set ourselves away from them, right? Is it not that purported beauty that compels us to keep them away, as we abstain from the over-rich food and commit ourselves to honest labor, theorized Kaiban? Fessia could not answer this. As luck would have it, he changed the subject again and said, As luck would have it, this grocer's wife seems to be in the later stages of childbearing, as her belly extends beyond her... Anyway, she will have a baby within months, I think. In the painful silence that ensued, all that the child Hikonoff knew was that he was very hungry. Find her if you can, Brother Kaiban, said Fessia. Tell her about this boy, otherwise he will die, and it will be on your hands. The censor was written and narrated by Seth Brady with music by Noah Pardo. The censor now has a uh, personal Twitter account and uh, also a personal email. So if you wish to express your opinions about the podcast or any theories you might have about the lore, or if you wish to just say something to me or to anybody else involved in this podcast, which, which is that, you know, it's just me and Noah. Uh, just me writing and narrating and Noah making the music. Uh, go ahead and uh, tweet at T-Censor. That's at T-C-N-S-E-R. Uh, it's, uh, the reason it's spelled that way is because it's, it's an incense burn, as uh, indicated in the first episode. Uh, or email uh, thecensorpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you want to, um, if you want to compliment Noah on this choice of music or ask him a question about it, uh, you can find his Instagram at NPX Sound in, on Instagram at NPX Sound Instagram. There you go. Please do. Please share this. Share this story. Um, you know, proselytize the gospel without legs. Tell people about. The struggle of uh, William and her sacrifice and her son. I mean, it's it's all made up. This, this isn't actually a religion. This isn't actually something that happened or will happen. I mean, it might happen. Anything could happen in the fullness of time, theoretically. But it's fiction. It's fantasy. That that's all it is. It's all it's all just for your entertainment. Um, but please, please share share this podcast with your friends, with everybody else, uh, so that I can keep telling you about it, so that I can keep telling you this story. Thank you, my friends. <laughs>